Listen to this. This is God's word, 1 Thessalonians 2, 17 through all of chapter 3. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. But Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Would you pray with me? Lord, we know that this is your word. We are learning more and more that we can trust it. We are learning together that your word knows us more intimately than we think we know ourselves. We're also growing in our understanding of how good your news is for us. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to see ourselves more clearly, think about our lives with greater understanding of the truth, and that as always, you would bring us to the Savior afresh so that we might know his power at work in our lives, so that we might, defi might be defined by Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. Uh, this week I learned about a guy named James Lawrence. He is known as the Iron Cowboy, a guy that loves triathlons. In particular, he loves Ironmans. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's this. He, well, excuse me, when you run an Ironman, when you participate in Ironman, this is what it is. You swim 2.5 miles followed by riding a bike 112 miles, followed by running 26.2 miles for a grand total of somewhere in the neighborhood of 140.6 miles. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the level of endurance it would take to do that? Just to 
swim 2.5, bike 112, run 26.2. Can you imagine the endurance of that? Well, this guy, James, decided that because of spending time the uh, previous years uh, doing all kinds of triathlons and different types and lengths, he decided that those never pushed him to his limit. So he decided that he was going to do 50 Ironmans in 50 days in 50 states. Can you take that in? Like if you can comprehend the endurance of what it would take to do one of those, imagine doing 50 in 50 days and in 50 states. I'll let you watch the documentary to find out how it goes and if there are controversies around it. But at the end of the documentary, his wife has several takeaways. One of the takeaways is this. She said, she has learned through this process that human beings think that if something is hard, then it is wrong. How about that for an observation? Human beings think that if something is hard, then it inherently must be wrong. And one of her other observations, one of her other takeaways was something to this effect. We don't really take in all the good things that can happen from refining fire. You know what she's talking about, right? Through the challenges and difficult things of life, they actually can be refining. There can actually be good things that happen through going through affliction and hardship and pressure that good things can come out of that. Well, my hunch is that most of us could use a strong dose of endurance in our lives. If you're here this morning and you're willing to look below the surface of your life, if you're willing to do that, and you're willing to think about your jobs, and you're willing to think about your relationships, and you're willing to think about your family, and you're willing to think about your responsibilities, my hunch is, especially during this time, you might be of the disposition to say, you know, I could just use a little bit more endurance right now. I know I could. This passage that we're looking at this morning is about endurance. It's talking to us and communicating with us about endurance. Maybe we can put the question this way. This is what question this passage is answering about endurance. What allows us as individuals and what allows us as a church to endure? What is it that allows us to endure? I want to tell you three things this morning. Hopefully I can show you these from the text. The first one is this. Every church, every individual has a story. The reason I picked this passage is because it gives a summary of the totality of Paul's experience with the church in Thessalonica. Let me add a few things that aren't found in these verses, but that come to us from another part of the Scripture that color, makes us more three-dimensional. If you like to, you can go back and read Acts 17. Because there we find the foundation of the church at Thessalonica, which Paul references here. We were torn away from you. We weren't with you very long. Here's the backstory. Paul made it to Greece. 
He wrote this letter around 5051, the year 5051. Think about that. After Jesus' resurrection, the gospel made it within 20 years from Jerusalem all the way to Greece. The gospels made it to Greece. And Paul arrives with Timothy and his friend Silas. And what happens is that they go to this little community, Thessalonica. And as the text says, they go to the synagogue. And what they do is they start meeting with those that want to understand who God is and what he's like. And what they do is they start going through the Old Testament and they start saying, the God, Jesus, that you've heard about, the God that rose from the dead bodily in time and history about 20 years ago in Jerusalem, that was all talked about in the Old Testament. So we use the Old Testament to explain Jesus and what Jesus was doing and what he had done what was going on? And people heard that message, understanding who Jesus was, and the text tells us in Acts 17 that many believed. It also says that there were some that did not, and they got really upset. You can follow that train in Acts 17 all the way to the point in which city officials get involved. And they go to this guy's house named Jason, and they want to take him to jail, and they want to bring him up on charges and, and interrogate him about what's going on with Paul and Silas and Timothy and what's happening in their community. Paul says in Acts 17 that he was there three weeks. Now, of the verses that I read to you today, did you get the vibe that he like loved these people? Did you get the sense that they really loved him? I mean, look at verse 17 where we started. We were with you and then we were torn apart from you. My heart is still with you, but I was removed physically. He was tight with this group and they were tight with him and they only knew each other three weeks because at the end of three weeks, because of the uproar in the city, because of the city officials being involved, God's people thought, Paul, you need to get out of here. You need to leave town. So he and Silas and Timothy left and they went to Berea and Silas and Timothy stayed there and Paul ultimately made it to Athens in Acts 17. And what he writes here is, that's the background to what he writes here. And what he says is, I was torn away from you. And verse, the first couple of verses of chapter 3 tell you that he stayed in Athens alone. And then he says, but ultimately I sent Timothy to you. Look at verse 2 and verse 5 and verse 6 of chapter 3. I had to send Timothy to you because I wanted to know what was going on. I wanted to know about your faith. I wanted you to be encouraged. I wanted to hear about you because I couldn't come to you and you couldn't come to me. And then the text tells you that Timothy did go and he did talk to them and he did meet with them and he did encourage them. And then he went back to Paul and he told Paul what he found out. That's the basic story that we have here in chapter 2 through chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians. There is a story. There is a story that is involved in how this church got started. There is a story that you have in your life. And if you're ever going to understand endurance, if you're ever going to know how you can further endure, 
cannot forget your story and you cannot forget the story of this church because it all matters. It's not like you can just pop a pill. It's not like you can just do three things and boom, endurance just goes on. You have to think about your life and you have to think about the life of the church. Secondly, not only does every church have a story just like every person has a story, but secondly, every church and every individual thrives in relationship. In other words, if you're not in relationship, you're not going to thrive. If we're not interested in relationships as our church, we will not thrive and therefore we cannot endure. We have to have relationships individually and collectively. We need to value relationship. Let's just walk through some of the things that we see in this passage. The first is this about their relationships. Let's start with the obvious things about their relationship. Number one, it was close. I mean, the language that Paul uses here, I was ripped apart from you. Think about that. And look, they can take me away physically. In essence, is what he's saying in verse 17 and 18 of chapter 2. In essence, you can rip me apart physically, but my heart is still with you. You think he loved them? Of course he did. And if you look in verse 6, they long to come to him in chapter 3, verse 6. We want to be with you. We want to see you face to face. They were close. Obvious from the text. It's obvious. Do you have any close relationships? I hope you do. Second, not only were they close, but you could tell that this relationship was full of challenges. So yes, I want you to think about your relationships, and yes, I want you to think about the challenges in your relationships. Look at what he says. First part of chapter three, he talks about a thick affliction. And then he even says, but you know what? We were destined for this. How about saying that? How about thinking about your relationships as being destined for affliction and hardship? That's not something we wanna hear, is it? Remember, if it's hard, it must be bad. Paul is saying we live together and there is affliction that is going on and it is going to be hard and difficult. Obviously, there was pressure from the outside, right? Obviously, there were those who didn't like the message that Paul was saying. They didn't like the good news. They didn't want to hear about Jesus. And therefore, they were applying pressure. They were afflicting Paul to the point where he and his friends Everybody knew that they had to get out of town. It's real. And part of Paul's leaving and loving them and wanting to hear how they're doing is because he knew they were still enduring that affliction. But affliction was bringing them closer together. It was part of genuine community, genuine relationship. And that means this. What are the afflictions in your life? Being a follower of Jesus means that you can be honest about your afflictions. It means you can be honest about your challenges. What are they? My hunch is that you've got them relationally, you've got them spiritually, you've got them at work, you've got them all over the place. The Bible gives you space and freedom because you live in a fallen world to understand affliction and to think about affliction. And just to press this in a little bit more, and this is where it requires an enormous amount of Holy Spirit in your life and honesty. Paul's not talking about where we complain. 
So if you look at your life and you realize that you complain a whole lot more than you actually have affliction, by the Holy Spirit, deal with that. Stop complaining. Deal with what's really significant and challenging and difficult. What is affliction? We should all do the best we can by the Spirit's power to just stop complaining all the time and deal with real challenges. You see, what's underneath that affliction that Paul highlights for us here, the real challenge that we have, look in verse, I think it's 18 of chapter two, and then again in chapter three, he mentions our enemy. Do you know who our enemy is? Satan. Now, we've talked about this several months ago. I just want to bring it back to your attention because it's easy for us to lose sight of this. He says, I want to come to you many times, but I couldn't because Satan hindered us. He writes them in chapter 3 and says, look, I want to know how you're doing because I'm concerned that the tempter might have tempted you to walk away and we would be so disheartened if you thought walking away from the faith was a good thing. Satan is real and we should not obsess over him nor should we pretend that he doesn't exist we need to act in a way that acknowledges that he is active and what he wants to do is deceive that's what he wants he wants division he wants deception If you are a follower of Christ, I will make this as plain as I can. He wants you dead. Now, he can sugarcoat that in a zillion ways, but he wants you dead. He wants me dead. He doesn't want us to believe truth. He doesn't want us to live by the truth. He doesn't want truth to be the most important thing to us and Jesus the most important thing. He wants us dead. And if you're here and you're not following Jesus, let me tell you, what Satan wants for you is to stay numb. To stay numb to spiritual things and in staying numb, you will be detached from what is real and what is true. And he sugarcoats that numbness in so many ways. Relationships are profoundly important. There's closeness. There are real challenges. Now let's get to the secret sauce. The things that we would miss if we just read over this section quickly. The things that we might miss if we don't pause and and if I don't highlight them for, for you as I had to think about them myself. Let's get to the secret sauce of relationship. You ready? Here are some things that are here. Three of them. Secret sauce is how Paul viewed the relationship in the present, the goal of the relationships. We'll just go with those two first. How about that? How did Paul view the relationship with the Thessalonians in the present? Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. For we live if you stand fast in the Lord. Do you see that? He is saying, I find life by the fact that you are continuing to believe in the face of affliction with the reality that Satan wants all this to go away. I derive life from your 
living and believing in Jesus. How about that? As if he would to say, you know, if you stop believing and stop thinking that Jesus is important, I would die. Now that's love, isn't it? That's care, isn't it? And in our relationships, when we get to know people and care about people and even open up about affliction that's going on and we hear what God is doing in their life even in the moments in which we are low when we hear that they are someone is trusting in the Lord that is a friend of ours that gives life doesn't it that's secret sauce stuff We need to have relationships with others in which we're talking about our faith because as we hear what God is doing in others' lives, it brings life to us. The second thing is this. Not just thinking about how we view our relationships in the present through Jesus and life in him, but look at the goal. Look at the end of chapter two. This is remarkable. What does he say? What, what is our joy? What is our crown? What is our boasting at the return of Christ? Is it not you? He, in this kind of relationship, and all of this, by the way, can happen in our lives, and all of it probably by God's grace is, is happening in our lives to some degree or another, but here's the Apostle Paul saying, the goal of relationships is the return of Christ and being with him, with God them so that the goal of relationship is Jesus do you see that so that it's not just that Paul's thinking about how this relationship is life-giving because of Jesus but ultimately he gets to boast in Jesus and boast in them because of what Jesus has done that he finds joy that he finds glory that he finds hope in them because of what Jesus is doing isn't that amazing And sometimes we say things like, yeah, I can't wait till Jesus returns because I want to talk with David and I want to talk with Abraham. And guess what? That's great. I think that's part of this, an application of it anyway. But to know that the goal for our relationships is Christ and being with all of those that belong to him, that's the goal of a relationship so that a goal relationship is not really, you know, me? That is completely disorienting in the day and age in which we live when our relationships are typically transactional when we have a tendency to view people as well what can they do for me well this person's useful in my life because they advance my agenda and if they don't do that then therefore I don't want anything to do with them Paul is saying no real relationship is that Jesus is the goal He's the goal. Do you think the Apostle Paul has let his guard down with these folks? Do you think that they let their guard down with him? Do you think that he not only cared for them, but then started to realize, oh, man, it brings me joy when they are having joy. And his joy was not connected in what they could do for him. It was just the fact that they had joy in the Lord. And because they were enjoying Jesus, he was deriving tremendous joy from that. Paul had let his guard down. It's what we have to do. We have to let our guard down. We have to enter into these relationships and 
be able to get close to people and let people get close to us and, and talk about affliction and hear about others' affliction. And, and we need to think about Jesus together in those moments. And we need to remind ourselves of where all of our relationships are headed, to Jesus. So that real relationship and real community is not centered on self, any one of us, but centered on Christ. I've got a friend. I'll try to, let me try to illustrate for you closeness. Let me try to illustrate for you challenges, affliction. Let me try to illustrate for you living in the present, thinking about Jesus. And let me try to illustrate the goal of relationships being about Jesus. Let me try to illustrate all that we've talked about so far. I have a friend named Cliff. He's 15 plus years older than I. Cliff returned to his hometown 10-ish years ago to plant a church. He's in the ministry like I am, just in case you didn't know that. Sorry, I get going and I say things I shouldn't say. He, he, is, he tried to plant a church a, a little bit more than 10 years ago. And the church plant, you know, would kind of get off the ground, then it would kind of flounder. It was up and down. Um, and toward the end of planting this church, he found out that his dad, who he was very close to, um, got dementia. And so there was a lot of time that he needed to spend with his dad. And um, ultimately, they had to close down the church plant and never really got off the ground and never really became self-sustaining. And in the middle of having to shut down a church plant that he had been working on for over 10 years, in the middle of that, they found out that not only did his dad have dementia, but he also had advanced cancer. So his livelihood was no longer there and he had to figure out what to do to make ends meet. Um, something that he poured his life into for 10 plus years was obviously not there anymore. And he was caring for his dad. And he got to spend a lot of time with his dad. As a matter of fact, the last 18 months of his dad's life, he was able to spend time with him. As dementia advanced and progressed, as the cancer began to take over more and more of his body. And they, he told me that there was one day that as his dad had advanced in these negative ways, that his dad looked up to him. And you know what it's like to deal with someone that has dementia. They often don't remember those that are closest to them. So they were most of the time where Cliff's dad didn't remember who he was. But there was one day that his dad looked at him and said, what's wrong with me? Imagine that. And Cliff said, dad, Jesus is building you a house, and he's almost done. And Cliff's dad said, I think I'm ready to go home. Beloved, in the midst of affliction and closeness and challenge and thinking about Jesus and the present and the goal of every relationship, there it is. And do you know how all of that is possible? It's because of this third ingredient of the secret sauce, truth. You can't really care for people or be cared for by other people without truth. Look at verse 10. 
Paul longs to be with them. They long to see each other face to face so that he can shore up, as verse 10 says, what's lacking in their faith. In other words, God wasn't finished working on Paul. God wasn't finished working on them. In other words, truth is what held them together. So love was not unqualified affirmation so that his joy in them was not what they could do for him. Truth is what anchored their relationship. Truth about Jesus that was returning. Truth about who Jesus was and what he had done. Truth. One guy I read this week said, put it this way to help us understand how all this fits together. You know, in your relationships, if you keep your heart from people and you keep your head from people, in other words, you won't tell them what you're really thinking and what you're really feeling, if you keep your heart and you keep your head, you'll always stay detached, always be detached. If you give your heart to people and you give your head to people, you'll always be looking for them to give you something that only God can give. You'll always be giving your head and your heart because you are wanting their approval. You are wanting your identity to be derived from them, whoever that is. But what this is showing us is that we should give people our heart and we should always keep our head because we should always be thinking gospel in our relationships. So we can give our hearts, but we're always thinking Jesus. Third thing is this. Every church lives, every individual lives by God's blessing. Look at verse 10 through 13 of chapter three. Quickly, we'll go through this. Look at what Paul says. Again, I'm going to summarize this. Just hit the highlights. Look at what Paul says. We long to come to you. We will seek God so that he will make our path to you. In other words, he's submitting all that he is, all of his plans, all of his power, all that he is to God's. I don't know how we're going to get there, but God's going to have to direct this way so that we can come to you and be together. We submit that to you. Then he talks to them about the reality of love being burdened to love one another. May your love abound more and more to each other and to all. God's blessing is at work in our lives, working love into us so that we are willing to love others and love all. Work that down into the very words of Jesus, loving your enemies. I don't think we really live in a culture that is, has anything, knows what to do with this kind of love. Do you? We live in a culture that is angry, frustrated, a culture that thinks that love is unqualified affirmation. And God is telling us to love each other and even to love our enemies. In other words, those that don't like things about us. Maybe we don't like things about them. 
because of love characterizes us individually and love characterizes us as a church, love always leads to holiness. Look at what it says, that we may be blameless in holiness. Holiness doesn't come from being smarter. Holiness doesn't come from being, from arguing. Holiness flows out of love. And not only does Paul say that we are to be a people of love, but he says actually that we are looking forward to the return of Christ when he comes with all of his saints. He's reorienting our lives to the fact that God is in control, that he may direct my way to you, that God desires us to love, and that we are all moving toward the return of Christ. Do you see that? And this is what God does from the inside out. The gospel works in us from the inside out. Everything else in our lives is outside in. Politics, outside in. Things at your work, outside in. Power, trying to make you do something. The gospel works inside out. We love because God first loved us. We understand that we were created and rebelled and Jesus redeems and he will restore. And that reorients all of us to the future and the reality that Christ is coming back and will make all things right. We are reoriented toward that. What allows endurance? What allows endurance to grow? You gotta think about your story. You gotta understand real, genuine relationship. We need to live by God's blessing. And that's what brings us to the table. Remember that as Jesus was with his disciples, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat, do this in remembrance of me. After he had given thanks, he also took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from it, all of you. For as often as you take the bread and drink from the cup, you proclaim my death until I return. As we come to the meal this morning, just want to remind you, if you have given your life to Christ and you realize that Christ died for you, he lived for you, and you believe in what he is for you, this table is for you. You need it. If you have made profession of faith and have claimed Christ as defining who you are, you need this table. And if you're here this morning and you haven't believed in the Lord Jesus, you haven't made, and you haven't acknowledged that he has forgiven you and that he is your life, that you belong to his body, the church, this table is not for you. So we would ask that you not eat and drink if you don't belong to Jesus. What we would ask is that you take Christ at his word and think about who he is and what he says and what he's done. Because he will change your life. He's changing ours. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for this meal 
It reminds us that you use simple, ordinary things. As the creator of all, use bread and wine to remind us that these common things communicate to us by the work of your spirit, profound spiritual connection. You would even tell us in your word that as we eat and drink, we are communing, having fellowship with you. Thank you that you give us this meal to remind us that we not only need to hear your word, but we need to taste and see that you are good. Thank you for giving us this meal so that we can take you in afresh and affirm that we need you to come into our lives, into our bodies, to change us from the inside out. Thank you that we can eat this together in remembering that's how you work. In your name, amen.